600 new followers to our Facebook page in the last two months. So that's, I mean, okay, let me say this again. We've had over six, we want to welcome you and we want to honor you. So if you're watching us this morning for the first time, we, we have had over 600 new followers to our Facebook page in the last two months. Exactly. So we were, we're very honored to have you and we're very grateful to have you. And we're very grateful that all of you are here this morning. And we're doing a series called uh, uh, Become. And just all of the pressure in life sometimes is pushing you and things that are forcing us into different areas of our life. Um, we want to become what Jesus wants us to become don't we? We want to be faithful. We want to be confident. We want to be hopeful. We want to have all of these things that are necessary that God calls his people to be, right? We're in the world. We're not of it. One of the things he calls us to be is to be abundant. Did you know that? One of you. Okay. Jesus has called you to be abundant. So what I want you to know is that Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a promise and Jesus has a provision for every area of your life. He's the all-sufficient God. There's nothing in no, no area of your life where he doesn't have a plan, he doesn't have a promise, and he doesn't have a provision already ready for you. There's no lack with the Lord. So let me give you a little basic training for you guys that are Christians so that you can understand how his kingdom works. Because we're born again, we get saved, but then we don't kind of understand what it looks like. And then what I find Christians doing most of the time is they're guessing. They're always guessing as how God is. They're always guessing as to how things work. Or, you know, there's always a guessing game. There's no guessing game. The Bible gives it to us. The scripture teaches, us, uh, teaches it to us if we're willing to listen. Those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So God tells us how it works. He tells us what we are, who we are, and he tells us how his kingdom is to operate in our lives. And the first thing you need to know as a Christian is you are symbiotically connected to his kingdom. When you get born again and you become a Christian, you come out of darkness and into light. You are translated. You are now in this world, but you are no longer of this world. You understand that? That's not just a poem. That's a reality. So God's declaration to our life is that our lives are not bound to this world. Our lives are bound to his. Our resources do not flow from this world. Our resources flow from him. Our provision does not flow from this world. Our provision flows from him. That doesn't mean God doesn't use natural means. But the natural provision is coming through a supernatural, a supernatural ability. And you're connected to that. Which means your willingness to participate in his kingdom is going to affect how that operates in your life. Or your unwillingness to participate in his kingdom is going to affect how his kingdom operates in your life. It doesn't mean you're not saved. doesn't mean you're not born again. doesn't mean you're not going to heaven. None of that. That's, that's an entirely different issue. You get born again and you get saved and you're given an inheritance. But just because you have an inheritance doesn't mean you're activating your inheritance. Just because you're of his world, it doesn't mean his world is operating in your world. On earth as it is in heaven. That's God's will for our lives and his will in the earth. So our connection is to his kingdom. Not in the sweet by and by, but in the rotten here and now. Right? So it's not about just the sweet by and by. It's about the rotten here and now. His kingdom is alive and well in the rotten here and now. Right? So we can be blessed and we can operate with abundance. We can go through things. We can overcome things. We can continue in a path that where our lives just continue to move in a, in a, in a positive and affirming direction in spite of all of the circumstances around us. This is how God has designed it and it relates to his kingdom. But you have to relate back to his kingdom. If you don't relate back to his kingdom through what? You know, obedience, right? Faith, 
and honor. Those are the three keys to the kingdom. Obedience, faith, and honor. And if you do not relate to the Lord in relationship to obedience, faith, and honor, the kingdom cannot activate in you. It cannot. I mean, the Bible is very clear about that. I love, the, I love Galatians. I think it's 5. Galatians 5, it says, The heir, so long as they are a child, is no different than a slave, though they're masters of all, but is under stewards and tutors until the time appointed by the Father. Who's the heir? When the Bible speaks of heirs, who's the heir? The sons and daughters. You're an heir in Christ. You're an heir. But I say to you that the heirs, that would be the believer, is no different than a slave, though they are masters of all. As long as they're children, as long as they operate in an immature way, as long as they don't take their rightful position, as long as they don't grow up, even though they're heirs, they're no different than slaves. That's why Christians are no different than the world around them. Because they're immature in their development. They're immature in how to activate the kingdom. They're immature in their obedience. They're immature in their faith. And they're immature in their honor. The heir is no different than a slave, even though they're masters of all. But they're under stewards or tutors until they can grow up. And when the Lord looks and says, okay, they've grown up, they're under stewards and tutors until the time appointed by the Father. And some Christians never get it. They just never get it, right? They never understand the principles of obedience. They never understand the principles of faith. They never understand the principles of honor. And therefore, the kingdom cannot activate in their lives. That's just a fact. And so why there's oftentimes we perceive that God is withholding from us. He's not withholding anything from you. I want you to say this with me. The problem is always on my side of the equation. Problem's not with the Lord. If he's made a promise and there's an attachment to the promise, the issue of him meeting the promise is not in question. The issue of you meeting the condition associated with the promise is, what in, is what's in question. There are promises that are, every promise has a condition. I, you know, people say, well, Christian, the, the salvation is unconditional. No, salvation is conditional. All the promises of God are conditional. Every single one. Salvation is predicated upon you believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Salvation is predicated upon you surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ. Salvation cannot activate in any person's life until they obey the principle associated with the promise. You want to be saved? You want to be born again? You've got to obey the predicate. What is it? Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's risen from the dead and you'll be saved. And then salvation comes to you. The promise become that's an easy promise. All of you that are here, the majority of you that are here, understand that promise because you've given your heart to Christ. You've confessed Christ and God has fulfilled his promise to you because you have met the condition of the promise. So this misnomer that there is no, that all the promises of God are unconditional. That, who told you that? that? That's just simply not true. And salvation is unconditional. That's not true either. It's conditional upon you believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. It's conditional upon you completely surrendering. It's not just a prayer. It's the surrender of your heart. The acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. And so you're symbiotically connected to his kingdom. The way you live, the way you think, and the way you respond will activate or diminish his power in your life. Ah. Oh, God's power is unlimited. Really? Read, Read Nazareth. He could not do many miracles there. Because the people did not activate in faith. Read it. He grew up in Nazareth, right? Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not the carpenter? Is this not him? Even though Jesus wanted to do a lot of miracles there, he couldn't because he couldn't get the people to operate with what was required to do the miracle. A simple belief that he is who he says he is. And that he's willing to do what he said he would do. That's all it takes. You're God and I believe you're going to do what you say you're going to do. That's faith. That's how simple can it be? But they couldn't get themselves to that place. They couldn't believe that he was God. They couldn't believe that he was who he said he was. 
And if they couldn't believe who he said he was, they would never believe that. So even though Jesus wanted to do miracles in Nazareth, he couldn't. He just couldn't. So the way we live or think and the way we respond to this kingdom is what activates these principles in our lives. So we're going to talk a little bit about world. We're going to talk a little bit about ideologies. And then I'm going to try to give you some understanding into yourself, right, as a human. Right? And anytime we understand ourselves as humans, it's not good. You know, because we're just a bunch of dysfunctional creatures. We're a bunch of fallen. We're broken. We're messed up. We're shot out. And we need Jesus. And so the world has an ideology. So the world system is a way of thinking. And the ideology of the world is scarcity and insufficiency. Almost everything in this world is built around the concept that it's scarce and that, that, that there's, not, it's, there's not sufficient resources. We do demonic things like we need to have population control because there's not enough food in the earth. Well, who told you that? Who told you that? How, how, there's, there's more than enough food. There's so much resources. God was not insufficient when he designed this earth. He was not. The earth as it sits right now is generating wealth is generating power. There is rivers of water underneath the deserts of Africa. Do you know that? Rivers of water. So what, what would happen? The desert could bloom simply because if they could access the aquifers or the aqueducts that are beneath it, and man would steward the earth properly, the desert would bloom. How do you know? Because they do it all over the world. Israel's blooming deserts, why we speak. Why? Because they're stewarding the resources that they have. The problem isn't that there are the resources isn't available. The problem is, is that man's selfishness and greed is what the problem is. The earth is sufficient. If you don't think there's... They have to take diamonds and they have to put them in a vault. There's so many diamonds that the big diamond companies hoard the diamonds in order to control the prices. They have diamonds for the next 200 years stored in a vault. And they intentionally buy them off the market so that they can keep their prices high. You think the earth, you think a diamond is rare? No such thing. You think oil is rare? No such thing. You think natural gas is rare? No such thing. The earth is literally manufacturing these resources while we speak. It's not like it happened one time and it, the earth stopped doing it. The earth is literally generating wealth. Everything that God did provides for itself. It's a sustaining resource. The problem is not the resources that are provided. The problem is man's greed, man's corruption, and man's sin. That's the problem. And our failure to steward what we've been given. The world operates off of scarcity and insufficiency. The kingdom and the way that we're supposed to think is through abundance and sufficiency. This is how we're supposed to think. There's, there's always more. Christian, there's always more. There's always another opportunity. There's always another provision. There's always hope. There's always more. God is not exhaustive. He doesn't just give it and go, well, that was all I had. I don't have any more. You know, you had your shot. God is such a good God that even if you blow it, you come back to him. He'll give you another shot and he'll probably give you more than what you wasted. Do you know why? Because he knows you learned something. This is who he is. Well, Lord, I gave it and I, I lost it, Lord. I mean, I, I completely screwed it up. I was, did we learn anything, Kevin? Yeah, Lord, I was a little bit like immature. I was a little bit stupid. You know, I was a little bit this. I was a little bit that. And he'll go, did you learn anything? And I'm like, yeah, Lord, I learned anything. Do you want to go again? I'll go again. Here, take twice as much this time. That's how he is. If you think he's any different than that, you don't know who he is. Those that come to him must believe and know who he is. Who he is. Who, 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 who he is. Where's my other microphone? Am I losing power? Am I powering down? No, we're good. Okay, I got four thumbs up from the table. That means that means we're good. I mean, we're go for launch. Go for launch. 
So the kingdom's, the kingdom's attitude is abundance and sufficiency. The mitigating factor is how you believe and perceive. If you're a Christian and you believe, and all you do is perceive your life as insufficient and you believe that God is insufficient and you believe that God doesn't have enough or that God will not give you an opportunity or that or another opportunity will not come or whatever it may be, then your life is going to be lived in a diminished way. There are actually psychological studies that prove this out. This isn't even me up here stating something and quoting scripture and trying to be all biblical, which I love to be. This is actually proven through a human condition. The American Psychological Society, the American Psycho Society, they have a thing called called scarcity syndrome. There's actually a condition called scarcity syndrome. And what we would call or the kingdom would call a poverty mentality So the the Bible would have a a word or a frame or Christians would have this understanding of a poverty mentality. The world or the American Psych Society says it's scarcity syndrome. It's a perception of scarcity that, that affects rational thinking. Your perception is always in line with scarcity. And what ends up happening is that your thinking and the decisions that you make are, are irrational. Say, can you prove that? I got three words for you. Well, maybe four. The toilet paper rapture of 2020. That's right. Scarcity mentality that promotes irrational behavior. Toilet paper just raptured. It just vanished. I mean, it was gone for months. You know? And there might be a roll of toilet paper sitting on the shelf thinking, I got left behind. You know? But what it is, is it's a scarcity syndrome. That, like, we, everybody just begins to behave irrationally. Because in their mind, they're, 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 they're having this perception. Is, is toilet paper rare? I don't know. Is, is, is it like, like a natural resource? You, you know, you'd be trading it like gold if that was the case. You're like, wow, in an apocalypse, I don't forget gold, man. I need to stock up on some, you know, toilet paper. Toilet paper. So these are the things. When, this is what happens with people who believe eating. They, when they believe food, this is crazy. I mean, you're going to see it with yourself. When you believe food is rare, you actually eat more. <laughs> so true. When you believe that food is scarce, it's proven that people eat more. This is again. Now, don't hate me. Say it this way with me. Don't hate the pastor for speaking the truth. Okay? My name is Kevin. I'm your friend. I'm not trying to tell you anything. This is why obesity oftentimes is very, pop, very, very huge in, 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 in people that are in poverty. It's not, it's because their perception is that this is rare, so I need more of it. I know it's sick. We're all sick. I mean, it's seriously, we all got this issue. I see stuff with myself. I'm like, what? I do do that. When you, when you focus on time, when you feel like time is short, you don't focus on the task, you focus on the clock. You get irrational about the clock. Even though you have a task and you have a deadline, you start obsessing not about what you have to do, but about the time that you have. It's It's nuts. When you believe money is short, this is what they, this is, comes again from them. When people perceive money is short, they make short-term decisions and fail to long-range plan. Hmm? I know, it hurts. I know. It hurts. It's universal to all humans, so don't feel bad. Everybody's just like you, and everybody's just like me. We have some issue in some area. It's the upper part of the soul, so this is what the, how they look at it. So psycholog- psychologists will say, the upper part of the human soul, or the mind, the will, and the emotions, is intellect and has an ability, we'll call it common sense, it has an ability to operate with common sense. That's intellectual part of human beings. But then there's a lower part of us that's the stimulus center. 
What happens when people perceive this, they've studied this. When people have a perception of scarcity, the wisdom center drops. The intellectual center drops and the, uh, the common sense center drops and people become more susceptible to stimulus. You don't think marketers know that? Of course they do. They know that. They know how to get you to a place where you, you don't have it. You need that. You know, your, your perception shifts. So when, when you're viewing things of, from a point of scarcity or from a position of what you don't have, you don't have this. Your perception is scarcity. And then your perception become now you become more susceptible to stimulus. That's why we do the things that we do. You know, that's why we go and do the crazy stuff that we do. This is part of our human nature. So as a Christian, this is important. It's important for you to differentiate between your two natures. This is why I bring this stuff up to you guys all the time. Because you need to know what's you and what's Jesus, right? Word of God divides soul from spirit, bone from marrow. It's a discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So God's purpose in your life is to divide the two kingdoms. So that you can see what's of him and you can see what's of you. And so that you can make a quality decision to not live as you. You can make a quality decision to live as you are. And that's in his kingdom. So as in, in your human nature, this is what we are. This is what we do. You know, don't beat yourself up because it's what you are as a human being. All human beings are susceptible to this. We are. But as a Christian, we have another option. We have a way out of this world, the way out and up. And the first thing, this comes with some understanding. So the way out of that is to understand that you're not of this world. I got a good, I got new good news this morning. You are not in Christ. You are not of this world. That's good news. Right? Somebody's got to get excited. You're not of this world. The world is passing away and all of the selfish desires thereof. But those who abide in the will of the Lord will, will endure forever. Right? So this world and its system is passing away. But God's kingdom will endure forever. There's, gonna, there's a coming kingdom that will overtake this world and will full surpass it in God's timing. And it will happen. And if you are of this world, then you too will pass away. But if, and eternally. But if you are not of this world and you are of his kingdom, then it's life eternal. You do not have to be enslaved to your old nature. So here's the good news. You're not of this world. Happy day. You don't have to live like a slave to your old nature. You don't have to. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. You all have a provider. So here's the deal. So while the world has scarcity and they have no one to look to but themselves, we have someone greater than this world. We have a provider. His name is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides hallowed be the name of the Lord. So when God gives you himself, he gives you his name. And God has a multifaceted name. His name, Jehovah, or Yahweh, means becoming one. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who will yet do. So when God's testimony in your life is, I was the one who was with you when you were down and out. I was the one who brought you out and is with you now. And I am the one who will take you into the future. I am Yahweh. I am the becoming one. That's the word Jesus, Yahweh saves, Yeshua, Yeshua is Yahweh saves, Jesus is Jehovah saves, same word, Jesus is in Greek, Yahweh is in Hebrew, so you know the difference, that's how the pronunciation is, but God has compound compound names to his name, you have Jehovah, the becoming one, the one who, and the word Jireh is provision, actually means future provision. So God is saying, I am Jehovah. I'm the one who provided for you before. I'm the one who's going to provide for you right now. And I'm the one who's going to provide for you in your future. That's what he's saying. You have him. The world cannot have him. Those who are apart from Christ, you don't get this. You can have it. 
If you give your life to Jesus, it comes with the benefit package. You get the name of the Lord. He is Jehovah Rapha, which means healer. I am the one who healed you before. I'm the one who will heal you now. And I am the one who will heal you eternally. I am he to you. That's what he says. He gives us his name. So you as a Christian, here's good news. You have a provider. You have a provider. You're not alone in this. You're not alone. We call upon Jehovah Jireh. Hallowed be the name of Jehovah Jireh. And we learn to pray and intercede based upon the covenant promises that he has made to us. And you'd be surprised what happens. Here's another one. I got a bigger one for you. You have an Adonai. This is great. What is Adonai? It's the Hebrew word for Lord. So when God says, I am your Adonai, it means he's your Lord. So Jesus is Lord. What does this word mean? It wants one who watches over you to benefit you. So when Jesus says, I'm your Adonai, what does that mean? He says, I am watching over your life so that I may benefit you. That's what he's doing. And so now the question is, how does he do that? What is God doing and how does he do it? God is doing this on a basis of three principles. It's just a simplification. I could make it bigger, but it's just easy for us to understand and remember. God is watching over your life. And if you are a Christian, you will, he is working in your life to bring you forward, to elevate you. That's what God is doing, to work to elevate your life in every way. And it starts with survival. So God's good. You don't, if you're a Christian here this morning and you're named the name of Jesus, you don't ever have to worry about surviving. You will survive. You're going to come through it. You're going to survive. Whew, just made it through that. Survival's not an option to the Christian. You're going to survive. Success and significance, those are the higher levels. All Christians will be provided for. In fact, God even promises to provide for the unbeliever in the level of survival. He gives the believer a little bit more because you're the children. So you guys, we get the bread, but the world, he even sends rain upon the just and the unjust. He provides and he'll give you survival. But his goal in your life is to not leave you at survival. It's to move you to a level of success. What is success? Success relates to the term abundance or more than enough. God's desire in your life is to not leave you living hand to mouth. Anybody like a living hand to mouth? Anyone? No, got real quiet, right? It's not fun, is it? Living just hand to mouth, hand to mouth, hand to mouth, hand to mouth. But, you're, but you will always be provided for it. I'm sure even as a Christian, if you look back on your life, you can see the survival that's going on in your life. And you don't know how you're going to make it through, but you survive. You don't know where the provision is going to come from, but you survive because God will always provide for you. You will survive. That's the good news. But his goal for you is success and significance. And these are relative factors based upon you. Absolutely. These are relative factors based upon you. Survival is not an option. It's given to you. Benefit plan, right? So he's wa- God's watching over you to provide for your survival. God's watching over you to bring you to a level of success. God's watching over you to bring you to a place of significance. And what are his benefits based upon? What determines this? The first thing is himself and his nature. God's going to provide for you just because of who he is. For no particular reason of all, at all. You can be a Christian smoking, drinking, and chewing, and hanging out with those that are doing, and God will still take care of you. He will still take care of you. It's an amazing thing, right? He doesn't reject you just because of your own stupidity or your own ignorance. He will still take care of you. He will take care of you based upon who he is. He is love. Based upon who you are to him. You're my child. Of course I'm going to take care of you. So how he takes care of us and how he responds to us in the realm of survival, this is why you should always have confidence. I may have just forfeited some success in my life, but I know I'm going to survive. You know, 
My stupid action may have forfeited some of my success, but my stupid action will never forfeit my survival because God will always provide for me. Always. You should have absolute, unending, and enduring confidence in that. God will not fail you. Ever. Because it's based upon Him and who you are to Him in Christ. That's how He operates. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with who He is and who you are to Him. Right? And in Christ, you're sons and daughters. He's going to take care of you. So what happens with, when it comes to that? So then that's, that basically looks like survival. Obedience and faith activates success. I want you to say it with me. Obedience and faith activates success. Right. And here's where we all trip. All Christians start tripping over obedience. Right? Would you say this with me? All y'all at home. Obedience is when I don't want to. That's obedience. Obedience isn't when you want to. That's called agreement. Obedience is when you don't want to. You don't want to do it, but you do it because he's told you to. That's called obedience. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. That's what God said. More than anything you could do for me, if you want a default mode as a Christian, obedience is your default mode. Yeah? Your default mode is always obedience. Obedience and faith, activation principles attached to the promises that release the inheritance. The inheritance cannot be released in your life without obedience and without faith. Healing cannot be released in your life without obedience and without faith. If anyone is sick in their body, let them present themselves to the elders of the church. That's one of the things that you're supposed to do if you're sick in your body. Right? And it, what it does do? It activates. The Bible tells us to lay hands on the sick. If I'm not obedient in laying hands on the sick, if I'm not obedient in doing those things, that promise will not activate. Just this morning, you know, I call out the word, right? I have to be obedient in order to activate that word. I have to have faith in order to activate that word. It's just the way it is. Without my obedience and without my faith in what he said, I cannot activate that inheritance. The inheritance is there. And I was like, wow, that was really cool, Lord. You told me about that and I didn't do anything with it. And the Lord's like, yeah, you didn't do anything with it because you didn't obey me and you didn't demonstrate faith. Therefore, I couldn't activate what I wanted to do. You see how this works? Doesn't mean survival. I'm talking about success. You have to be obedient in what God says and you have to demonstrate faith in what he says. This determines success. This determines whether you will go from just having enough to having more than enough. That's the mitigating factor is the believer. 100%. Then there's the principle of honor. Honor is what creates significance. When you go from, he's there, he's out there, I kind of know of him, he loves me, he's going to take care of me, I'm going to survive, to where you go from, I'm going to obey him because it's right, I have faith in what he says, to I know who you are. That shifts the world. When you know who he is, the world shifts. world shifts. Watch this. this. The Bible uses the word great faith. It's actually, it can be easily translated honor. The centurion replied to the Lord, Lord, I do not deserve the honor of having you come under my roof. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. I myself am one who am under authority. I have soldiers under me. And when I speak, this happens. If I say, come, he comes. If I say, go, he goes. Do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. When this guy demonstrated the honor of understanding who he was, the whole atmosphere around Jesus shifted. That's why he was amazed. Because the atmosphere around the Son of God himself activated. Who he was just became activated. 
not because of faith. You see who he was being activated by faith. You see who he was being activated by obedience. But when someone demonstrated honor, woo, Jesus literally felt the atmosphere change around him. And he was amazed. He marveled because he knew what was acting. He wasn't ignorant as to what was happening. He knew what was happening. But he's like, wow, I haven't even had this activation even among my people. This unbeliever activates me in a way or activates this inheritance in a way that my people don't even activate. You get it? What was the difference? He knew who he was. I know who you are. You are a great king. I know you possess the authority, the power, the will, and the wherewithal to do what I'm asking you to. I don't need you to do any more than to be who you are. So I honor you for who you are. And Jesus went, wow. (laughs) And it was an atmosphere change. Everything shifted. Very important. Everybody say it with me. Scarcity is not of God. Absolutely not. Poverty is not of the Lord. Who told you that? We need to be poor like Jesus. You're believing a lie, man. You're believing a lie. That's a lie from hell and it smells like smoke. Poverty is not of God. It's not. Poverty is only glorious to people who are not in it. Anybody that's in poverty, poverty is not a glorious condition. Huh? Do you enjoy not knowing how your bills are going to be paid? Do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy not knowing where your food's going to come from? Do you enjoy not knowing where your kids are going to be provided for? What God would give you that and call himself good? Jesus became poor, so what? You could be made rich. Which how? Rich in spiritual things, but rich in provision. It doesn't mean you're going to be driving Lexuses and living in a house by the water. That's where we twist this stuff. See, it's a prosperity gospel. I'm like, 100% it's a prosperity gospel. And I'm the president of the local prosperity gospel chapter. Prosperity is relative. Prosperity doesn't mean that everybody's got Rolexes. It means you're successful and you're prosperous, right? You got a little garden in the backyard and it starts blossoming tomatoes. And, that, and you're like, wow, look at my garden. It's so prosperous, right? It's prosperous. It means you are flourishing. It means your life is flourishing. It means the areas of your life. It doesn't mean there's not problems, but it means it will flourish. That's the idea. It's not this extravagant Americanized cultural thing that we call that. But the prosperity gospel is absolutely true because it is prosperous. God is a prosperous God. You don't think he'll provide for you? Who told you that? You don't think he'll give you a job? Who told you that? You don't think he'll give you something that somebody else has? Who told you that? The bread's for the children. I was moist all the time, man. The guy didn't have a job. He's an accountant, doesn't have a job, doesn't know how to get a job. And I start telling him, nothing fair about favor. I was just preaching this one time and I said, there's nothing fair about favor. I said, God will move that unbeliever out of that job and he'll give it to you. And you go, oh, that's not fair. Nothing fair about favor. The bread belongs to the children. God gives nations. This is scripture. He gives nations for the ransom of his people. He'll bankrupt another nation in order so that you have it. He'll kick people out of jobs in order so you could have it. Well, what's wrong with that unbeliever? Maybe that unbeliever needs to understand that so that they in turn call upon God. Maybe that unbeliever is so sufficient in themselves that they need no one else and they need to suffer a little humility so that they too will look to the Lord. Guy got fired from a job. So the guy interviews Moise and he goes, man, we like you. We just hired this guy three weeks ago, but we think we like you better. Let's work it out. They call him back, got the job. They let the other guy go. That's not fair. Well, then you stay where you are and you don't understand the kingdom principles. There's nothing fair about favor. If your kid, if, so let's just play this. So this week we kind of go, well, that's just not fair. Okay. Your, your husband is coaching the baseball team and your son. So your husband's coaching the baseball team and there's two spots left on the team. 
And it comes down to your son or it comes down to the neighbor's son. Who's going to be on that team, ladies? That's exactly right. Why? Because there ain't nothing fair about favor. You see how it works? Because we look at it and go, well, I just can't understand how God operates. You operate with it all the time. Honey, your patient, man, yeah, but Timmy's way better than Johnny, mom, or honey. You know, I mean, he, this kid's way better than our son. I don't care how good he is. Your son is on that baseball team. Come on, you all know that's how it works. Why? Because it's favor. Nothing fair about favor. Your father's the same way. Your heavenly father's like, well, this guy's better at that than my son. But hey, my son, I, this is my son. Get out of here, man. You're, my son's taking that job. Where's your faith, Christian? Where's your faith? We, we minimize God to such an extreme that we, don't, we actually operate like we don't know him. We create a God in our own image. We break the second commandment without even knowing it. Because we create a God as we understand him to be, not a God as he declares himself to be. It's who he is. It's not God as you think he is. It's God as he says he is. Scarcity is not of God. Jesus puts it out. The thief. Who's the thief? Anybody here? Who would, when Jesus references this, this, this generic thing, he says the thief. Do you know why he says the thief? Because he doesn't even want to use Satan's name. He doesn't even want to use Lucifer's name. He diminishes him from an entity that by simply calling him a thief. He's dismissive of him. He's nothing more than a thief. He's not all powerful. He's not this. He's nothing. So when Jesus references him as a thief, he's, he's literally diminishing the, the enemy. You know, if you ever watch me, I had somebody go, you know, you don't capitalize sometimes. I'm like, oh, you're talking about Satan's name. If you ever see me type Satan's name, his name will never be capitalized because his name doesn't deserve to be capitalized. <laughs> I, don't, I don't capitalize Lucifer and I don't capitalize Satan even when I use it. Why? Because he doesn't deserve it. He's not worthy of it. But Jesus, I'll put him in all caps. He's got the cap lock. Oh, we're going to type Jesus? Cap lock, Jesus. The thief, the devil, does not come from you to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. The scarcity in your life is not a result of God's direction against you. It's the result of an enemy who's encroached upon you. I have come that they may have life and have life with abundance. Or fullness or flourishing. It's that same concept. God's will, God's intent. So what's God's will for you? That you live in poverty? That you be broke? No, that's not his will for you. How do we know? Because he says it. My will for you is that you have abundance, that you flourish, that you be in success, that you be, you're going to be in survival because I'll make sure of that. But I want to move you to success. And ultimately, I want to move you to significance. Significance means you're impacting something greater than yourself. You understand that? It means you're, you're meta. So it's micro, it's macro, and it's meta. Micro, survival. Macro, God is giving you success, so you're influential or you're providing for just not what's around you, but different things around you. And then macro is when you're actually doing something that impacts the globe, the city, the nation, the neighborhood. Who knows? That's his desire. Abundance is more. The, this promise is to all believers. God's making this promise to all believers. The activation of this promise. Okay, everybody hold the chair. So we're about to say something that isn't spoken in churches anymore. Okay, ready? Here's some words that aren't spoken in churches. American churches don't use these words. We don't use the word sin. We don't use the word repentance. We don't use the word devil. We don't use the word any of those words. They're, they're almost neutered. We, we've just completely cut them out. Why? Because people just get uncomfortable, Kevin, when, when you mention the word sin. Yeah? Sin. People get uncomfortable when, they, when you mention the word repentance. Yeah? Repent. Why do we use these words? Because Jesus uses these words. You understand that? 
He calls us that we're sin so that we can understand the problem so that we can come to him and repent of the sin. Here's another word we don't use. We use the word tithe. Everybody say it with me. It's going to roll off your tongue. Tithe. Tithe. Doesn't that just roll off your tongue? The tithe. The activation of God's promises in the arena of your finances is directly related to the tithe. Directly. 100%. What is the tithe? It's a tenth. Say this with me. It's not a debt I owe. Oh, I only got it on this side of the room. Come on. It's not a debt. I got, only, got, only, got only got a half of you on the quarter of y'all. Say it. It's not a debt I owe. It's a seed I sow. You don't have to. You get to. In the Old Testament, they had to. Why did they have to? Because the Holy Spirit had not come. And God had to keep his people in a river of blessing. And the way he kept them in a river of blessing was by mandating that they do it. Now the Spirit has come. So survival is with you. And the opportunity for abundance and the opportunity for success or significance is directly related to you. You don't have to. You get to. Ready? This is going to help some of you. Tithing is an eternal doctrine. I was taught by old boys. And some of the old boys that taught me, one of my 74-year-old guys that taught me, when I was just a a young guy, didn't know anything, but I was smart enough to say, whatever you say, tell me and I'll do it, because I know nothing. One of the things he told me was, Kevin, if if you're reading your Bible... And you have a doctrine that's consistent from Reve- Genesis to Revelation. You can, put, you can take that check to the bank. Doctrine is formed over consistency through the same pattern. So when we have the love of God, we know that the love of God is true because it's consistent through the Old Testament and it's consistent into the new. We know that, right? So we have the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit is true because we have the Holy Spirit all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. We know that that's true. Tithing is in Genesis and it's in Revelation. If you don't like tithing, you better get used to it. Because when you come into the consummation of all things, you will bring tribute to the Lord. How do you know? Because it tells us. In Genesis, it predates the law. Adam and Eve's, Adam and Eve's sons were tithing. Cain and Abel. And why did, why did Cain kill Abel? Huh? Because God accepted Abel's offering and he despised Cain's. Why? Because Cain gave him his leftovers. Cain gave him some of the portion. Abel gave him the fruit of the ground. People say, no, Cain gave, Abel gave the blood offering. It has nothing to do with the blood offering. You have to read the text. Abel gave his first and his best. He gave in honor. And Cain looked at him and goes, well, I guess I got to give something too. And so Cain ran around and scrambled all of the stuff that he didn't want. And he offered it to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want what you don't want. He's like, this is what you're giving me? You know, you're giving me what you don't want? And he despised it. And he said he despised Cain's offering. Why? And then he went to Cain and said, Cain, sin lies at the door and tries to consume you. But you must master it. What was Cain's sin? Selfish greed. Arrogant pride. Selfish greed lies at your door and wants to consume you. And the bet's all off. The jury's out as to whether that's going to happen. The Lord didn't go, but I won't allow it, Cain. He said, it's up to you, Cain. You have to master your selfish pride and you have to master your greed. If you don't, sin is crouching at the door, ready to pounce on you. Just a thought. It predates the Torah. It continues in Revelation. Revelation 21. This is the consummation of all things. Revelation 20 and 21 is when Jesus consummates all things. Palin Genesia. He makes all things new. It's the renewal of all things. This is the eternal kingdom. And it says the nations, the ethnos, will walk by its lights. Talking about the internal city. Jerusalem comes down. Tabernacle. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Revelation 20. 
And it says the gates of the city will forever be open and there will be no light for the Lord will be the light. Oh, what a day that's going to be. He's like, what's that look like? I don't know, man. But I think it's going to be cool. Jesus is an eternal disco light show, man. Light is going to come from his being. The Lord will be the light. There will be no light because the Lord will be the light. That city will be open day and night. And the nations, this word nation is the word ethnos, which means different people. It's not nations or nationalities. It means different people, ethnos. The ethnos, all people, all different people will walk in this light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor unto it. And on that day, the gates will never be shut. What day? The day that Jesus brings the consummation. There will be no night there. The glory, and the, the, the glory and the honor and the tribute of the nations, the ethnos, will be brought into it. It's the same understanding as tithing. Tithing is a tribute. The highest level of tithing is the level of honor, which is tribute. If you can't understand honor, then understand faith. If you can't understand faith, then understand obedience. Basically, God's trying to meet you wherever you are with these principles. If you don't understand honor, Kevin, then operate by faith. If you don't understand faith, then just do it because I told you to. And if you can't do that because I told you to, then I can't help you. If you cannot operate by faith and do something just because he told you to, nobody can help you. Nobody can. God, if you, like, you can't understand a simple commandment, I, I always use Saul. Saul lost his kingship. He was in kingdom authority and he, didn't, he couldn't operate in his kingdom authority because he couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. That was, Paul's pro- that was Saul's problem. God anointed him to be king. He had a kingdom, he had a kingdom influence on his life, but he, could, he lost his kingdom influence because he could not follow a simple set of instructions. He kept making it up uh, as he went along. And the rebuke upon Saul's life was, you can't obey a simple set of instructions. If you can't obey a simple set of instructions, how can you walk in kingdom influence? Just a thought. <laughs> The glory and the tribute of the nations will be brought into it. The ethnos. All people will bring glory and tribute. It's going to be a kingdom. We're going to be operating within a kingdom. But tribute will be brought to the king. I look forward to that day. I look forward to any day I can bring tribute to him. I look forward to any moment I can bring honor to him. Not just this Lord, but more. What else can I find to give you? What else can I give you that would bring honor to you? I look forward to it. I don't run from it. I'm like, take it all. Have it all. (laughs) Here's the people in the book of Malachi. This is what tithing looks like. It's the first fruits. Don't worry. I'm going to go easy on you. So it's okay. It's okay. I'll give you a little bit. Of, I'll give you a little bit of breather. You're like, I don't tithe. I suck. I'm terrible. What's wrong with me? You know why? Because 18% of Christians tithe. That's right. Only 18% of all born again, evangelical Christians give the full tithe. Only 18% of all evangelical born-again believers operate in the obedience that God has commanded them to do in their finances. 18 out of 100. Right. Just a thought. But you ask, so here's the people in Malachi, and they're going, oh God, we're having all these problems. I can't pay my rent. I can't, get my, can't pay my car bill. We're having all these problems, Lord. All these problems over here, all these problems over here, Lord. Oh God, oh God, oh God, why don't you see? Why don't you care? Look at me, Lord. I'm in sackcloth. I'm wearing black. I'm throwing ashes on my head. Oh, poor me, Jesus. Look at me. Look at my situation. What does he say? Anybody know Malachi 3? Why does he say this? They're calling on him saying, what's our problem? It's interesting because God will never say with me. God will never tell you your problem unless you ask. They had this problem for a long time, but it's only here that they're asking. 
They're asking, what's our problem, Lord? What's your problem? Why can't you see us? Why won't you listen to us? Why won't you do what we need? Why won't you honor your covenant? And the Lord says, will you rob me? That's his first words. So, oh, you want to know why I'm not honoring my covenant? Because your covenant, my covenant with you in that, in that area is directly related to your obedience and your faith. Am I not providing for you? They didn't cram about provision. They, they were crying about lack. They had provision, but they were suffering great lack. And so they're calling upon the Lord from the position of lack. Why don't you see, Lord? And they're making themselves miserable. You know, mascara running down the faces. Guys rubbing dirt all over them, tearing their clothes. Oh, God, we're so pathetic and miserable. Look at us. And the Lord says, be obedient. Get up on your feet. Stand up. Stop sniveling like a child. Take your position as a son and daughter and do what I told you to do. It's as simple as that. That's what's going on here. I know we don't like to hear it in touchy-feely America, but this is exactly the way God speaks. They're crying. They're sniveling. They're, whoa, poor me. And God didn't come down and go, oh, you know, let's just have a care session. Come to the cuddle room with your daddy. He doesn't do that. He tells them, get on your feet. You're a son. You're a daughter. Take your rightful position and do what is right. Do what is right. That's his mindset all the way through. That's always where you see Israel, sniveling and crying, sniveling and crying. Every single place that they're sniveling and crying, God says to them, get on your feet and do what I told you to do. Every time. And God says, you're going to rob me? He said, you're under a curse because, and the whole nation because you will not obey what I told you to do. The enemy is ravaging you because I cannot provide for you because you have shut it off. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food, meat in my house. Prove it to me. Let me prove it to you. You don't think I'm going to honor my covenant? Prove me, says the Lord. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing so much there will not be room for. I will prevent the pest from devouring your crops. Oh, there's a promise. Anybody want the pest to stop devouring your areas of your life? Right? You know, all the corners of your life are just being consumed. The Lord's like, it's going to stop. Your vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it's time. The nations will call you blessed because you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. That's a promise directly related to an act of obedience. That's a promise directly related. We we pray this. We've tied the whole time. And when anything like this looks contrary to what God says, we come before the Lord and we lay statement down upon the offering and say, we tithe. We lay claim to this premise. You have no right to inhabit this area. You have no right to cut off provision from our lives. We are faithful givers. Sometimes you got to go and fight and declare the promises over your life because God's promised it. And the devil wants to see if you actually know what he's talking about. <laughs> They're waving at me. I got to move on. I have to move on. What's the storehouse? The Old Testament temple. The storehouse is the New Testament church. The tithe goes to the church. The tithe doesn't go to ministries. The tithe goes to the local church where you are led and fed. That's God's ordained thing. I get people that come to me and they go, well, I give my tithe to the United Way. I give my tithe to the orphanage. I give my tithe. I go, you're not giving your tithe. That's called an offering. The Bible tells you where your tithe goes. The tenth goes to the church where you are led and fed. Wherever you are led and fed, the tenth goes there. Anything beyond that is called an offering. Right? It's tithes and offerings. So if you want to make an offering, make an offering. But that's not your tithe. You can make it up as you go along. But I'm going to tell you, if you claim a promise attached to the tithe and you've not done what he said, the enemy is going to nullify it and he's going to go, nope, didn't do what it said. 
I could go off on that, but I won't. Why? That there may be food in my house. Jesus intends his church to be resource rich. He says, prove me, which is another way of saying, I dare you. I, I dare you to take me up on this promise. I dare you. And he said, I'll open up the floodgates. It's the Hebrew word uh, sluices. It's where, they, where, where something is damned, right? Something is stopped in your life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody at all? Where it just feels like something is stopped in your life. And God said, if you will do this, I will open up the floodgates, the sluices, and I will cause what has been being withheld from you to be released. That's what he's saying. You know what a sluice is, right? When water's being stopped and they open up the sluice and the water begins to flow. That's what he's talking about. Floodgates. It's a sluice. It also means aperture. I will open the aperture, which means I'll let more light in. Giving is proportional and giving is percentage oriented. Why did God say 10? So that everybody gives equally. If you make a million dollars, you give a hundred thousand. You make a thousand dollars, you give a hundred dollars. You make a hundred dollars, you give ten dollars. <gasps> you know who the people who have the biggest problem with it is? Take a guess. The big money, big money people. The hundred dollar, the, the, the barista at Starbucks and the person, you know, flipping burgers or whatever, making ice cream, they don't have a problem tithing. It's the guy that's big money baller. He's got the problem tithing. And they begin, to, they begin to like, oh, determine what they should give. Oh, well, you know, I gave $5,000 to the church last year, pastor. A guy who's got three houses and a multi-million dollar business. Had a guy tell me that. Took me out to lunch. Wanted to impress me. I gave $5,000 to Elevate last year. I'm like, wow. I'm like, praise God. Thank you for all of your generosity and your offering. But I go, you don't look like you live on 50000 a year. He went. Yeah. My dude, you don't look like you're, you're rolling off 50 grand. You know, you drive multiple cars, multiple houses, three houses that I know of. And I knew the cars he drove and the business he had. I don't give, I don't really care. I'm not like trying to press the guy, but don't try to impress me with what you're giving. When I, when I'm looking at you going, dude, you know who you're talking to? And you're going to tell me you gave five grand and I'm going to look at you and go, you now, if you work at Starbucks and you tell me you give five grand, I'm going to go, hallelujah. What faith? You know, praise God. 10 is the prophetic number of eternity and testing. Why 10? Because it is the number of eternal testing. 10 bridegrooms or 10 bride, 10, 10 virgins and 10 lepers. What was the point of 10 to test them according to their faith and according to their preparedness? 10 is the only number that if you would, when it's multiplied by another number will repeat itself in infinity. 10 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. You're going to see 12 repeated in infinity. It is an infinity number and is the number that Jesus relates to testing. Testing. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. He's testing. Say, I don't have to. No, you don't have to. But Paul said the same thing to the church here. This is a New Testament principle. The principle looks like this. Remember this. If you do this sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you do this abundantly... You will reap abundantly. That's what he's saying, right? So they're like, we don't have to give Paul. We don't need to. We don't have to. And he's like, yeah, that's true. But I want you to understand the principle. If you do it sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you do it abundantly, you will reap abundantly. With that in mind, this is how the context of this verse flows. Now that you understand that, therefore, you should give what you determine in your heart to give. In other words, according to your faith. Where's your faith? You see where God's always calling them? Obedience and faith. We don't have to give. Yep, that's true. But if you don't sow, you won't reap. 
And if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly. With that in mind, determine where your heart is. Now you look at you and find out where your heart is. Oh, ho, ho, ho. We're getting on your couch now. Pulling up in your driveway. You should determine where your heart is. You should not give reluctantly and you should not give under compulsion. In other words, if you don't want to do it, keep it. If you feel like you're being made to do it, don't bother. That's what he says. If you cannot understand obedience, you cannot understand faith, and you cannot understand honor, keep every dollar. Don't you dare give. Because if you cannot do it out of obedience, and you cannot do it out of faith, and you cannot do it out of honor, God doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want you because there's some peer pressure attached to it. Keep it. He doesn't want it because you're compelled or you feel bad. Oh, I feel bad, Pastor Boop talk the message about tithing. I guess I got to give. Don't worry. Keep it. He's not, heaven's not broke. Heaven will never be broke. God will provide for his house. This is a house of faith. We believe God for his promises. We don't play at this. We live this. Huh? We live this gospel. We don't play. We're not up here telling you pretenses and make everybody happy and nice. Woo-hoo-hoo. We live this gospel. If you hold back, the promise will be limited. With the mind that you give according to your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give because someone makes you. Keep it. Do it because it's right. You'll be, and then what does it say? If you do this, you will be abundant in all things. That's the idea. Everything that you need will be abundant. You need wisdom in your business, it's going to be abundant. You need to know what to do, it's going to be abundant. God's going to take care of you in your marriage, even though your marriage looks like it's falling apart. He's going to take care of you. You'll be abundant. The pests will not eat the corner of your fields, right? Your fruit, you have a marriage, you have a fruit, and the marriage falls apart, and the marriage falls off the vine. God said, not so, I'll take care of it. I'll do for you what you can't do for yourself, because you're faithful to me. You don't believe me? I've been married 30 years. I've tithed for more than that. <laughs> My marriage looked like it's going to fall apart many times. <gasps> You're a pastor. You shouldn't admit these things. You're supposed to be holy. I'm human. And so is my wife. And we have to do the very same things that you have to do. And we need Jesus to show up in our home and do for us what we cannot do for him for ourselves. And we need to, we need the promise that this fruit is not going to drop to the ground before it's time. So here's the question. Do you, have the, do, you, do you have the will to be obedient? Do you have the faith to commit? Here's the three questions. This is where you got to ask your heart, right? So God's challenging, Paul's challenging these church. This is how it works. And so now you need to look in your heart. Do you have the will to be obedient? I don't need an answer, but you need to ask that question. Do you have the faith to commit? Do you have the heart to honor? Where are you? So here you go. Giving levels. Let's start where you're at. This is how this kingdom works, right? Start where you're at. There are people who've never given a dollar. Never given a dollar. Can you believe that? They've never given anything. Ever. I'm like, I can't understand that. The whole, one of the principles of the kingdom is generosity. You've never given anything? Just a thought. There's first-time givers. If you've never given, give for the first time. Then you say, I don't know what I can give. Give something. Rip the button off your coat. Give something. Take the shoelaces out of your shoes. Give something. You cannot come before this Lord empty-handed. They were not, it's like, if you want to, then that's on you, but not on me. Consistent giver. Here's the level two. So level one, if you've never given, start giving. 
Level two is be a consistent percentage giver. I can't give 10%, pastor. You know what I tell people? Can you give five? Can you give three? Can you give 1%? Can you consistently give Jesus one penny on every dollar that you own? Earn. Are you capable of that? Can you consistently be a percentage giver? Start with 1%. I will give 1%, Lord. This is what I need. if, If I can get to this level, I'll give the full tithe. You know what's going to happen? You're going to get to that level. When I get to $250,000, I give the full tithe. He's not going to honor that because that's a stupid statement, right? Know what you need. Let him meet you where you need. If I need this much, Lord, to provide for myself, and I need that 10% replaced. I had a guy here who could tell you stories about this all day. He started tithing. Never tithe. I'm like, welcome to Elevate. You don't like the word tithe? We don't teach it maybe once or twice a year, but we, we, we teach it. He never tithed. Guy was a Christian his whole life. Never tithe. I had so many people that tell me that. Never tithe. Never, never tithe. He took the challenge that I said, give the full tithe for 12 months and see what God will do. He gave the full tithe for 12 months. Was a, was a, he's a financial investor or a financial uh, analyst. He gave the full tithe for 12 months. He said he was passed over for promotion several times. I know, we got communion. I got you. Hey, they started late, so I got a minute here. I'm still in the role. I'm almost there. Working my way back to you. So gave the, gave the full tithe for 12 months. Passed over for promotion several times. They call him into the office and they say, hey, we were just going over your file. And we realize that you're undervalued here and you're underpaid. And so we want to promote you and give you a 15% increase. And I looked at him and he told me, he said, I've never had that happen. And I said, you see what Jesus did? I go, he gave you back the 10% and bonused you five. Yeah, he got a 15% wage increase off of a 10% investment. You understand that? I've had so many people that that's, that, that that's been their story. That's been their story. Positions, promotions, provisions. We watch it. I watch it all the time. Positions, promotions, provisions. For the faithful tithers. Positions, promotions, provisions. Because he activates it. It's real. If you hold back, it'll be limited. So here's it is. So you first time giver, can you become a consistent percentage giver? And say, Lord, if you get me to X dollars, I can give you the full tithe on top of that. Can you do that? And then when you get there, because he's going to get you there, he will get you there. I can promise you that. Will you give it? Third one is be an obedient giver. People that start giving the tithe, it's like they want a plaque. I give the tithe. I gave $5,000. I'm like, congratulations. You just left kindergarten. Congratulations. You're now in preschool. Thank God. The only thing you've done when you give the full tithe is you've come into obedience. That's the only thing you've done. Only thing you've done. When you want, when you want to go to another level, you start giving generously above and beyond the tithe that's it. You know? So like, don't celebrate the fact that you give the tithe. You you should give the tithe and you should receive honor for that. And you should receive the fullness of the blessing for that. But that doesn't elevate you in some status in God's eyes. All he looks at you and goes, okay, now you're doing what I told you to do. Cool. That's, that's how it works. Then it's generous giver. 18% of Christians give the full tithe. That's so sad. That's so sad. Imagine what churches could do. You know, and say, oh, those pastors are rich. Less than, those guys aren't rich. First of all, I do this for a living, and you ain't going to do this for the money. I can tell you that right now. There's a whole lot of other things. Generous giver go above and beyond the tithe. What could we do with it if we were, to, we were to become to that place? What could we do? What could God do in your life if you were to just simply obey him? Oh, I, could go, I, I could go another 10 minutes on this, but I won't. I live this, and this is very real to me, and this is one of the things that will change your life, Christians. This is one of the things that will change your life is if you begin to tithe. And don't just tithe, attach faith to your tithing. When you begin to tithe, say, Lord, I'm believing you for increase. I'm believing you for more.
Give the full tithe for 12 months. Here's my challenge to you. If you've never given, give. If you, have, if you do give sometimes, then start giving consistently at a designated percentage if you cannot give the full tithe. Believe God to bring you to a place where you can give the full tithe. Third challenge is if you're capable of giving the full tithe, give it. And then fourthly, if you're, not giving, if you're already giving the full tithe, begin to believe God where you can move into generous capacities. And take that challenge for 12 months and see what God will do. And that's it. But I want to tell the people at home, listen, there's a lot of people that are watching us and we're very grateful for that. And this message and this kind of teaching is directed at Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you may not understand it. But I can tell you this, that there's a lot of debt in the world, but there's one debt that you cannot pay. And that debt is sin. You can't afford it and you don't have the resources for it. And the Bible says that all have sinned. All of us are born with this debt. We all carry this debt. And we can't pay it. But the good news is, is that Jesus pays it for us. And the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid it. And that payment for sin and that payment for the debt of sin is sufficient. The debt of sin is eternal separation. And that debt will come calling. Oftentimes more sooner than later. As long as that debt of sin remains, you will be eternally separated from God. But you don't have to remain in that way. The Bible says Jesus paid it. He says this, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you. You say, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he's done. All who call upon the name of the Lord. God is inviting you to call upon him right now. You say, how do I activate this promise? How do I get out of this debt of sin? And how do I receive what you're talking to me about? The Bible puts it really simple. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Romans, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you will be saved. And so today's your day, not tomorrow, not next week. You go, I got to think about it. Think no more. This is the offer of a lifetime. You say, I'll do it tomorrow. No man has promised tomorrow. No single person has promised tomorrow. A lot of promises in the Bible, but the promise of tomorrow does not exist. If the Lord wills, the Bible says. And so God is offering you something today, and we want to encourage you to open your heart. We're going to pray here together as a, as a group, and we want you to pray with us at home. It's a simple prayer. We do the heavy lifting. I'll pray it for you. You just pray with me. And Jesus will do what he's promised to do. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. I believe you came, you died for me, and you rose again. I don't understand it all, but I choose to believe it. And so I ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart and to forgive me, to heal me, to restore me, and to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. In all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did that, we celebrate with you. We honor you. Hit us up in the messenger. We'd love to hear from you. We bless you. And we bless you one more time. We're going to take communion here at Elevate, but we're going to end the stream right after this blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.